This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Tony Riches, and I love listening to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. This is the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Welcome to episode 107. As always, I'm your host, Rebecca Larson. On this episode, I chat with Dr. Sarah Morris about your favorite of Henry VIII's wives, Anne Boleyn. Well, we actually, we talk about her mental state at the end of her life. And then Nathan Amin returns for Ask the Expert, and he answers your questions on King Henry VII. And lastly, on A Brief History Today, we talk about the very interesting love life of William Parr, the brother of Queen Catherine Parr. But before we get started, I want to thank my newest patrons since the last episode. Whitney D., Karen, Taylor P., Cindy H., Emily K., Teresa L., Kathy K., Elizabeth K., Jody, and Ashley M., Thank you so much for listening and for your support. And thanks so much to all of my existing patrons as well. Your support really does help keep this show going. Now, if you'd like to become a patron, you can do so by going to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudors Dynasty and click become a patron for options. Now, as a patron, you'll have access to exclusive content from the show, as well as free books and the Tudor course. See show notes at TudorsDynastyPodcast.com for links to Patreon, as well as links and more from our guests. If you don't already follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, now is the time. Because on Tuesdays, I play this game called Name That Place, where I share an image of a building and you try to guess its name. To help, I'll give you two clues. And to be fair, I don't make it all that easy either. Then on Wednesdays, I do a Tudor Spotlight, where I pick one lesser known character and I give you a a brief little history on them. And then on Thursdays, I do Thursday Feature Book, where I share an image of a book that I own and give you a brief description of its content. Lastly, we all love to test our tutor knowledge. So on Friday Fun Day, we test our knowledge on tutor history with one trivia question. See how much you know and follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as at Tutors Dynasty. Be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to the podcast as well. And as always, thanks for listening. All right, let's get on with the show. My guest on the show today is Dr. Sarah Morris. Now, Sarah is an author who has published several Tudor books, as well as being the host of that Tudor History and Travel Show podcast. You can find Sarah as well online at the thetudortravelguide.com. Sarah, welcome to the show. Oh, hi, Rebecca. It's really lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited to have you on because today we are going to talk about kind of the state of mind of Anne Boleyn and 
You had written an article that I thought was fascinating um, about her state of mind. But before we go into all of this, um, just I I don't want to keep saying fascinating information, but it's just to me, it's something that I had never read before. So can you please tell the listeners um, what makes you qualified to be able to discuss this topic today? Yes, because it is a topic that perhaps we don't often go into in so much detail, Um, but Although I online am the Tudor Travel Guide and and I write and I blog and I vlog and I podcast about Tudor places, um, actually before I came to um, this particular work that I do now, uh, I was first of all a medical doctor uh, for a number of years and uh, was part of the training to be a doctor. You obviously engage in certain amount of training around psychology. However, My current main job alongside being the Tudor Travel Guide is as an executive coach. And I've been doing that for about 20 years now. So I work with leaders, people. um, And um, of course, therefore, I spend a lot of my time thinking about psychology, people's values, beliefs, mindsets, and behavior. And I'm particularly interested in one particular facet of psychology that determines how we see ourselves, the world, and how we turn up and behave. And that is our ego. And we'll come back to that later because that will become very relevant. And I hope your listeners will then see why I was so fascinated uh, when I came across the article that we're going to be discussing, which led to me then writing this article about Amberlynn's state of mind as she approached her execution. Now, before we really get into that, let's talk to those who maybe are living under a rock, (laughs) who don't (laughs) know who Anne Boleyn is. We do have some listeners who are brand new to the tutors. So for them, Sarah, who was Anne Boleyn? Yeah, so let's start with the facts. So um, Anne Boleyn was the second wife, queen consort of Henry VIII. Uh, Henry VIII married Anne Boleyn in 1533 after around about a six-year courtship, putting aside, of course, his wife of over 20 years, uh, the Spanish, Spanish princess, queen Catherine of Aragon. And of course, in the process of doing so, Henry really turned the country upside down uh, by divorcing himself from the Pope in the process and making himself supreme head of the church in England. So um, the whole of the events that surrounded Anne Boleyn and her relationship with with Henry caused an incredible amount of um, cultural, social and religious turmoil in the country. It was an enormous and significant event. Um, Anne Boleyn, of course, in due course, gave birth to a daughter, Elizabeth I, possibly one of England's greatest queens. But unfortunately, she failed to give Henry VIII the son, the heir that he craved and desired. And in a perfect storm of events, and we're not here to dissect those today, that's probably a podcast in its own right. But she eventually, shall we say, to use a Tudor phrase, fell from the king's graces and ended up being arrested and taken to the tower on charges of uh, treason, um, adultery, incest, etc. And of course, famously, she was the first of Henry's queens to be beheaded. So that's who she is factually. 
Who is she to me? Well, she's my historical heroine, I will confess, uh, since I was about 11 years old. Um, so, yes, I've had a long-standing love affair and fascination with Anne Boleyn. She's the, well, she's actually, she's a bit, uh, to be truthful, in some ways, she's a bit like Marmite. Now, I'm not sure whether all your listeners overseas will know what Marmite is. Do you know what Marmite is, Rebecca? Mm, I just know it's some kind of jelly. It's like, um, I don't know whether it's like Vegemite that you, do you have Vegemite in the US? No, we don't. No, you don't. Okay. I'm getting myself confused. So Marmite is a a spread and it's made of yeast and it's, it's a very well known here in the UK. There's an advertising campaign that says you either love it or you hate it. Um, and I think Anne Boleyn as a character is a little bit like that. People, she either sweeps people off their feet and they fall in love with her because I think part of her personality calls to them. Or perhaps um, they, you know, don't like her on account of some of those personality traits and, and maybe the role she had in causing the divorce of Henry from Catherine. So, yes, she's, um, she's a force of nature. And I believe she was a woman who was ahead of her time. I always feel like those who are so enamored with Anne Boleyn that the reason they are is just because she was executed, that her execution kind of opened up her history to all of us centuries later. Well, it's an incredibly dramatic story, isn't it? It's got everything into it. It's got love and it's got passion and it's got betrayal and it's got drama and I think many people can't imagine what she went through. And we'll be talking about some of that today. For me, I think that Anne Boleyn endures because she embodies certain qualities. And, and I'm maybe I'm speaking very personally here, but I'm happy to share that with you. That And she's very courageous. And I think that her courage is something that shines through, certainly at the end and no matter what you think of her role that she played in the divorce of Henry divorcing Catherine of Aragon, it's very difficult. Even Chapuis, who was one of her, you know, one of her, shall we say, sworn enemies, to use another good Tudor phrase, um, admitted that she was braver than a lion. And I think for me personally, I I see her as a bit of a role model and I I still look to that courage if I need to find it in myself. So that's part of why she has an attraction for me. Let's go to the arrest of Anne Boleyn. Can you give us a bit of insight into maybe Anne's state of mind leading up to her arrest? Like, what do the accounts tell us? Mm. So here we are, um, the back end of April 1536. Um, Things are not looking good between Henry and Anne. Jane Seymour is now on the scene. Um, Anne knows that something is up. She's clearly very nervous and agitated. She doesn't know what's happening, but we do know that she knew something was going on because just a few days prior to the May Day joust, which ultimately, of course, led up to her arrest the following day, she went to her chaplain, um, beseeching him, begging him, saying that if anything were to happen to her, could he look after, could he have a care for her daughter, Elizabeth? So, She must have been feeling anxious in the run-up to the May Day joust. And, of course, Henry stormed out of that joust. um, And that was the last that Anne would ever see of him. Um, And, in fact, then the palace, you know, people followed the king. So the palace deserted, but the king did not call Anne. So she was left behind at Greenwich. And I think, actually, at the moment she was arrested, uh, which 
which allegedly she was watching a game of real tennis um, at Greenwich. I think she was she she carried herself with a a certain amount of dignity and calm at that stage. I mean, goodness knows what was going through her mind. Maybe it was like a swan, you know, she was, she looked regal and, but beneath the surface, maybe her feet metaphorically were paddling away. She must've been feeling anxious and scared, but, but I think outwardly she at this stage managed to hold it together to use a, a you know, a common, um, modern parlance. And that would be in contrast with what happened a little bit later uh, after she arrived at the tower. So, so yes, so so I think quite calm. She was obviously interrogated by the Privy Council at Greenwich and then um, dined in her presence chamber before the formal arrest warrant was read to her, I believe, if I remember rightly, by the Duke of Norfolk. And then she was taken that afternoon by barge to the tower. I had to look up again before we started talking today. Um, when she arrived at the tower, um, what she said to Master Kingston, um, could you tell everybody listening what she said when she met with Master Kingston at the Tower of London? Well, I think this point in which she arrives at the tower um, heralds a change, an obvious change, a noticeable change in her behavior. So, if she'd managed to hold it together up until that point, this is when her defences began to crumble and her sheer terror and anxiety began to show through. So she arrived at the court gate, not traitor's gate, as many people uh, you know, commonly believe, but at court gate, which was the stairs that was used by royalty to access the tower. And she was taken um, across the moat, uh, which was spanned by a bridge at that time. The moat is dry now, and into the under the into the court gate, which today is called the Bywood Tower. And when she was there at that point, she collapsed to the cobblestones for the first time. Obviously, it was just too much for her at this point, and she must have been utterly, utterly terrified. And she. She was accompanied, of course, by the likes of her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, um, uh, other privy councillors who'd come with her by barge. And she basically fell to the floor in tears, hysterics probably, and begged them to to ask the king for mercy and that he would be good to her. And and at one point, of course, when she finally met with Kingston, uh, I think there might be some debate as whether she met with Kingston initially or whether she was met by the deputy uh, of the tower. But at some point she certainly said, um, you know, would she be conveyed to a dungeon? That's clearly what she had in mind. And of course, Kingston or whoever it was, but I believe it was Kingston, uh, was able to say to her, uh, no, of course, madam, you will be uh, you'll be housed in the apartments, the royal apartments, which were part of the royal apartments at the tower. They no longer exist now that had been refurbished and repaired for Anne um, prior to her coronation in 1533. So that must have been, I suppose, some shred of comfort and hope for her. It always breaks my heart when I when I hear those, or I shouldn't, I didn't hear it because obviously I wasn't there. Mm. But when I read those things, trying to put myself into her shoes, which obviously isn't always so easy to do, but what a scary time for her! And one of the things um, I want to discuss um, before we actually move forward is uh, how long was she actually in the tower? 
Yeah, let's get a let's get a time frame in place. So she arrived on the second of May, but she was not finally executed to the nineteenth of May. So of course, there she's in the tower for what two and a half weeks of of uncertainty. And um, you know, it's interesting, Rebecca. You were saying you're trying to put yourself in her shoes. And I think that's a really important thing to do. And maybe your listeners could just pause for a moment and consider what Anne was facing. You know, if if somebody were to arrive at your house now and say to you that they're going to take you away from your family and that you're probably never going to see them again, and that you're going to be taken to a place which has a formidable reputation of people not emerging alive, and that you were possibly on the verge of losing everything you'd ever known and loved, how would you be feeling? I mean, you would, wouldn't you? You would be feeling utterly terrified, um, haunted even. And this is really important when we start to look at how remarkable it is in terms of what happened to Anne during those two and a half weeks from a psychological perspective. And that's what really fascinates me. And not only was she sitting in the tower, I'm sure contemplating her life and the life of her daughter, but she also had to think about her brother being locked up in the tower at the same time. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Because of course, The arrest of Anne Boleyn, I think most historians would agree now, was a coup by Thomas Cromwell. And it was a, you know, eat or be eaten scenario. Anne and Thomas, if they had ever really gotten on, had definitely fallen out by this stage. And earlier on, um, I think it was earlier in April, um, forgive me if I've got that wrong, but you know, a few weeks prior to her arrest, they'd gotten into a bit of an argument. And I think Thomas Cromwell felt that if he was not able to take Anne out, then it might be his neck on the block. But of course, the Berlin faction was very strong. There were people who would have been there to speak up for Anne, including her father and her brother. And so, you know, one of the... um, The strokes of genius, I suppose, if you want to call it that, by Cromwell, is that he managed to fabricate this plot of Anne being a wild and wanton woman who'd who'd, uh, had multiple adulterous affairs, but had also had incest with uh, uh, with her brother. And of course, those were on the grounds, although she didn't know it when she when she was arrested. She didn't know the grounds that her brother had been arrested on. Um, that, of course, took him into the tower. And their relationship, it seems to me, from the research and writing I've done around Anne over the years, I think their relationship was very close. So she would have, yes, um, faced the possibility not only of the loss of her own life, but knowing ultimately, and she did ultimately find out, it took a few days to find out exactly who was arrested with her. But she would have had on her conscience the fact that good men, people she knew and loved, were imprisoned in the tower with her and their lives were also on the line. She had an incredible amount to deal with psychologically at this point. Before we talk about how she felt on the day of her brother's execution, I kind of want to go back a little bit about her psyche. And we had seen what had happened 
six years later to Lady Rochford, who obviously went mad in the tower awaiting her death. But Anne has always been portrayed, kind of as you said, stated as well, as very stoic. Um, in your article, you suggest that Anne experienced this shift in consciousness during her stay at the tower. Can you please elaborate on what you found? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I'm going to talk on two different levels because there's almost a macro process, which is interesting in its own right, that I can talk you through quite quickly. And then we're going to dive into the the article that you talk about, which really refers to the final few probably hours, maybe a couple of days, hours of Anne's life where maybe something really quite remarkable happened. So let me take the first one first. I think that when we look at the accounts, the eyewitness accounts, and although um, some of the accounts were lost uh, due to fire uh, in the archives since this time, obviously some of those letters have survived, thankfully. And so they give us this insight into the events that happened from the moment that Anne was arrested through to the moment she left the Queen's apartments and walked towards the scaffold. And I think that when you look at those events, you can see the four clear stages that today we know are associated with grief and and loss. And that's work done by the likes of, um, I think her name is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who did a, a lot of work on grief and dying. And we know that those four stages are, first of all, shock. Secondly, anger. Thirdly, denial and or bargaining or both. And then fourthly, acceptance. And I think we can see actually each of those stages in these contemporary accounts. So First of all, going back, we've already talked about how Anne arrived at the tower and how she just simply collapsed in hysteria. And I think that was this you see, Anne, in that shock, that phase of shock. My goodness, this can't be happening to me. Um, and, 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 you know, just just literally falling apart at that moment. And that's where I think we see shock. Now, moving forward a few days, a few days on, in fact, in those first few days, we know that Anne really was rambling a lot. Um, the king, or Cromwell more likely, had put about her four ladies who were not really Anne's friends, <laughs> and they were basically put there to spy on her. Um, and perhaps um, you know, a wiser woman may well have kept her counsel, but I think you see Anne still in this phase of shock through these first two or three days because she rambles quite a lot. She reflects, for example, on the conversation that she had with Sir Henry Norris, which was the one that really got her into deep water um, when she accused Sir Henry Norris of looking for dead man's shoes, i.e. that he was hoping to replace the king after the king died. Um, which, of course, was just treasonous in and of itself. Um, and she, she rambles and she implicates herself. And it was exactly what Cromwell was hoping she would do. And, but I think she did that because she was in, still in shock at that phase. Then we move forward. Now, we're into a little bit of slightly contentious ground here, Rebecca, because we're talking about the letter that was purportedly written by Anne Boleyn on the 6th of May. So we're what, four days into her imprisonment now. Now, there is a you know debate. Was this letter written by Anne or not? Um, it isn't her handwriting, I believe, but it's thought that, you know, it's certainly 
expresses the kind of things that Anne would say. And if she did write it, and I'm I'm inclined to, I don't know what you think, but I'm inclined to believe she did. Um, what we see is a, is real. You can feel the anger in those words. She's basically saying, I know you're having this relationship with this other woman whose name I will not mention, uh, but you know who I mean. And, you know, there's anger in that. Yes, she does beseech the king to be good to the other men who are arrested with her. Um, but she's quite brazen and bold. And I think that's anger coming through. So we've got our second stage. Then we move on to the sort of the bargaining denial phase. And I think we see this a little bit later on. Now, we've lost some of the contemporary accounts here, but you you do hear and talk about the fact that, you know, the king is trying to just test her. You know, maybe he'll send her to a nunnery. So she's, she's sort of avoiding the enormity and terror of what might face her by thinking of this, this might be a way out, that might be a way out, this might not actually be happening to me. The third stage, denial. And then finally, and this is where we're going to really open this up and talk in some detail, but the final stage, of, as I said, is acceptance. And I think we see this uh, towards the end, and we're, we're going to go deeper into this, but we see it... Um, in the speech Anne gave after she was finally tried and accused, it's very calm. It's very matter of fact. She talks about her willingness to die. Um, there are times when, when, for example, Kingston finally arrives to take her to the scaffold and she says, acquit yourself of your charge. I have long been prepared. So there's no sense of hysteria in this. There's no sense of denial. There's just this sense of calm acceptance. So this is a a kind of a, a framework that we use today when we're thinking about people who are facing loss and grief. And I think we can see it in Anne. And I'm going to pause for a moment, but but yes, the natural stage from here is to go on and say, actually, I think there was a bit more to that last stage, or there could well have been something even more miraculous that happened at that point. So, so you're quite right. I am... Um, Oh, well, we've, we've, you know, I've talked about my interest in psychology um, and it was a happen, happen chance, really. I was um, I was reading a book by a renowned transpersonal psychologist called Professor Steve Taylor. I believe he's at um, University of Leeds here in the UK. And Professor Taylor has done a lot of work on uh, the ego. And um, basically he he in his book, which is called Out of the Darkness, he talks about a specific psychological phenomenon, uh, which he calls SITE, S-I-T-E, which stands for Suffering-Induced Transformational Experience. And basically, these are profound shifts in consciousness that people experience when they are facing severe trauma or turmoil or loss in which really their 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 sense of ego is disintegrates and in the disintegration of that sense of self that sense of ego and if you think it's appropriate we talk a little bit more about what is the ego then we can certainly do that but that sense of self disintegrates and suddenly we're able to experience a profound expansion in our consciousness. Now, he calls these high intensity awakening experiences. Um, so it's like that grief process I talked to you about, but on, on acid, really. You know, it happens in very intense 
experiences where one's sense of self and everything that one holds to be true is blown apart because it's just under such intense pressure from the circumstances that bear down upon us. And in the loss of self, we are paradoxically, according to Steve Taylor, liberated. Now, in modern term parlance, we might use the word enlightenment. Um, now, you know, people may have different feelings about that word. Um, but essentially, that's what we're talking about. And that when somebody experiences such a an, a high intensity and wakening experience, as I'm suggesting and might have, and we can see that all the conditions were present, um, you enter a deep, deep state of profound acceptance and peace. And you may well be aware of um, a biblical term, a peace that passeth, passeth all understanding. And that's really what we're talking about here. It's really something that is, well, it's a spiritual experience, really, uh, beyond the norm. And, and that is what I'm proposing Anne experienced as she faced probably the final day to day or two of her life. It's just heartbreaking. I mean, one of the things you might want to, you know, might be useful to say to those people listening is, is why? Why did, why, why did I think that in the first instance? Well, if you just rewind our conversation when I was asking people to imagine how would they feel if somebody arrived at their door saying, you know, basically we're taking you away and you, you're going to be facing um, losing everything you know, the people you love, your status, um, Anne's case, she had a lot of status. She had a lot of wealth. You know, um, she had a lot to lose. She was being ripped away from her daughter. She'd never see her daughter again. And at some level, she knew that. But why is it that when you look and read the eyewitness accounts that, that were of the day of Anne's execution, we have more than one account that talk about how profoundly peaceful and beautiful she looked. Now, now I don't know about you, Rebecca, but if I put myself in Anne's position and think of that very thing happening to me, and I'm entering into a period of, I don't know how long I'm incarcerated. My life is on the line. I'm losing people I've loved. I figure I probably wouldn't eat very much. I wouldn't sleep very much. I'd be terrified. And by the time I walked out to my execution, I would be looking haggard and drawn and haunted. And yet we've got more than one account that says exactly the opposite. So, for example, there was a Portuguese witness present that morning. And he quote, he's quoted as saying, never had the queen looked so beautiful. And then Lancelot de Carle, who's um, has a, a, a Frenchman who wrote a few weeks after. I don't think he I don't think he was actually present, but he wrote a, a long account of Anne Boleyn's life not long after uh, she died. And he stated that the queen went to her execution with an untroubled countenance. And we have somebody else saying that when the queen mounted the scaffold, she did so gaily, you know, that they couldn't imagine that she was even going to die. And those accounts 
had always really troubled me. Well, not troubled me, but I thought, what? What's going on here? How is that possible? Um, and it was bearing those things in mind when I read Professor Taylor's account that I started to think, hold on a minute, we know people go through psychological shifts when they face grief. Anne Boleyn was facing such an intense set of circumstances that did it, did they, did they actually cause her defenses to completely, her ego defenses, the thing, the ego basically, for those people who may be going, what is the ego? The ego is our sense of self. It's, it's a combination of all our beliefs and values and experiences that make up the sense of who we are. I'm a daughter. I'm a mother. I'm a, I'm a coach. I, I like chocolate ice cream. Um, I, you know, I love puppies, you know, and all of these things, when you roll them all together, they make up this very complex sense of self-identity and self. And each of us has an ego. And if I had to write a job description of the ego, it would be to keep us safe. It keeps you safe. The ego is there to try and keep you on safe ground, on comfortable ground, on ground that you feel secure in. And it will do all sorts of things to kind of shore that up. It it, it, it tries to collect wealth. It tries to collect possessions. It, it tries to sort of firm up this sense of identity. And And when everything is going well, all is well. But when the ego feels threatened and the ego is constantly scanning the environment for threats, it will start to react with anxiety and fear. So, you know, if you ever felt outside your comfort zone, maybe somebody's asked you to speak in front of an audience and you hate speaking, you'll get palms will get sweaty, your heart will race. That's because your ego has been triggered and you're in a dialogue of, oh my goodness, what will people think? Will I be good enough? That's been triggered. Now that's a minor, minor example that I hope many people listening can, can relate to. But in somebody in Anne's situation where she's facing the loss of absolutely everything, including her life, the intensity of pressure of the ego is so on the ego is so much that it literally falls apart. Now, also, Rebecca, you mentioned a very interesting point earlier. You talked about Jane Boleyn, uh, Lady Rochford, who was, of course, Anne Boleyn's sister, who ultimately went to the scaffold in 1542 for her complicity in Catherine Howard's adultery. Now, it's really well recorded. Now, she went through the same process of Anne, didn't she? She was arrested. She was taken to the tower. She'd seen her sister-in-law and her husband executed there. She knew what she was facing. And in the face of that similar um, onslaught of, of factors, what happened to Jane Boleyn was that she actually had a nervous breakdown. And interestingly, this is what Steve Taylor talks about in his book, Out of the Darkness. When the ego is under pressure like that, intensely under pressure, it can either fall apart and we have a what we would call a nervous breakdown, which, you know, we know Jane Boleyn went mad. And, and although I'm not an expert on Jane, if I remember rightly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Rebecca, um, I think they had to change the law to allow her to be executed because up until that point, it was illegal to execute a mad person, I believe. That's true. So they changed it so that, thank you, by the way. <laughs> um, so they changed it so that, that she could be executed. So that's a 
the example of a breakdown. Now, in this instance, what Steve Taylor is saying is this, there is another option. You can have a break up. So instead of disintegrating into madness, as I say, with the, with the kind of the breaking apart of the ego, you actually enter this higher state of consciousness where you connect to something which is beyond ourself, which is profound and spiritual in many ways. And, and, and at that point, you really enter a state of peace, peacefulness and fearlessness. And it's well known and it's well recorded. And basically, Steve Taylor interviewed a lot of people who've been through incidents, you know, whether they be car accidents or life-threatening illnesses that have really pushed them to their limit of what they thought they could endure. And he talks about this phenomenon that we see with these individuals, that they literally radiate this sense of peace, this profound aura of calm. And I think it's when I read that that it just, because I'd done a lot of research on Anne Boleyn just prior to this, so I was very, very connected. I was writing my novel, Le Ton Viandre, a novel of Anne Boleyn. I was very connected to the story. And in many ways, I felt like I'd literally walked in Anne Boleyn's shoes to the scaffold with her. So it was very fresh in my mind. And I think when I read that, I thought, hang on a minute. Isn't that what those eyewitnesses are saying? when they talk about Anne as she approaches the scaffold. And, and that's really where I, um, I started to pull these two things together. Um, there's a little bit more evidence that might weigh in our favour here, because, of course, Rebecca, we can't prove this. <laughs> Unfortunately, we can't prove it. It's an interesting, it's a very interesting thing to muse on, but there is a little bit more evidence that might weigh towards um, the fact that Anne was probably predisposed to this. And may, may, may I talk about that a little bit? Of course. Yeah, go ahead. So there are, again, through his research, um, Steve says that really there are, there, were, there are four predisposing factors out with the actual circumstances itself, out with the turmoil or the trauma that predisposes people to have a break up um, and... I think each we can see evidence of, of each of these factors in Amberlynn's life and in her character. So the first one, he says, is that people who tend to be very courageous and have a strong sense of realism are more prone to having these high-intensity awakening experiences. Now, I don't know about you, but... I've, we've already said that Anne Boleyn was noted by her contemporaries, by Chapuis, as being braver than a lion. Well, that's quite something. Um, and and I, think, I think probably most people who know anything of her life would say that Anne, you know, she took on circumstances head on. You know, she, she was no shrinking violet. Um, she, she faced reality and she dealt with it. She confronted Henry. I mean, that's part of, I think, in the end, what, you know, Henry got rather fed up of. She, she really, she didn't just sort of fade into the background. She was a strong woman. So I think we see that in her. So I think we've got one tick in the box there. The other factor he says is that the people who tend to need to be in control also have a greater tendency to experience these high intensity awakening experiences. And, um, you know, interestingly, 
you know, I think I think I think uh, Anne Boleyn was an alpha female. Uh, that's probably what attracted Henry VIII, who was an alpha male. Um, uh, and you know, she took her destiny into her own hands. I am not one of these people who believe that she was a pawn of her father or her uncle Norfolk. I think they supported. I think they facilitated. But I think Anne knew exactly what she was doing. And interestingly, her badge, which is a falcon, which is sitting on a, a kind of, I think it's an, it's some kind of oak or, or trunk. And I'm just going to refer to the, to the words here. It symbolizes one who does not rest until the objective is achieved. Um, which is interesting. I didn't actually know that about her badge until I was doing this research on this article. I thought, well, there you go. And uh, that's, that's definitive proof. <laughs> she sounds um, like me a little bit. This is creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think this is I think this is why people connect with her because there are parts when you dig in and understand you see some of these things either you admire and aspire to or or you relate to. Well the third factor is he says that people who are right brainers i.e. creative are more likely to experience these sights or high intensity awakening experiences and you know, there's no doubt Anne was creative. You know, she she put poetry to music. She danced. She played music. You know, she what was it? She, she there was something in her dress every day that was a little different. You know, she was a bit of a trendsetter. So I think we can. I think it's quite clear that Anne was 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 very creative. And the reason why creativity is important is it it, it basically. Um, People who are creative tend to be more intuitive and they have a more emotional personality and that makes them more susceptible. And again, you know, if there's anything we know about Anne Boleyn, Rebecca, isn't it, is that she was temperamental. (laughs) (laughs) You know, she was temperamental. So there's that. And then finally, the final factor is gender. So women, women are more predisposed to having these type of experiences. And that's because on the whole, their ego is less solid than the male ego. So it, it, it's more prone to being shattered. And so again, as I work through those factors, I thought, whew, we, I think we might have a four out of four checklist here. Um, and so, yeah, so I kind of swept all that up together and, and wrote my article, which is actually the most popular blog on my blog. <laughs> um, and it just gives us a different way of looking at Anne in those final, final few hours of her life. You just tied it up in such a perfect bow that I hate now that I have to go back and ask you another question. (laughs) Go for it. I had mentioned earlier, and the only reason why I'm going back right now is just because I had mentioned earlier that I wanted to talk just briefly on, um, you know, Anne was facing her own mortality and she was processing everything that was happening around her, including the execution of her brother. Now, the stories that we always hear is that Anne watched her brother being executed. Can you just briefly go into whether or not she witnessed this? And if we know how she felt on the day of her brother's execution, was she already, do you think, to the Enlightenment? Or what do you yeah, think? I can talk. Absolutely. So, yes, um, it is or one of the stories is that Anne Boleyn was forced or taken to watch her brother's execution. Uh, Now, if you know anything about the layout of the tower, if she was to do that, I think, I think the most, most folk 
believe that she would have had to have been in the taken from the royal apartments to the bell tower, which is in the kind of the far left hand corner. If you look at the tower from its river frontage, and that's where the likes of Sir Thomas More was imprisoned. And and um, I just don't, I I really don't buy into the fact that she was probably moved across the tower in broad daylight. It's possible. It is absolutely possible. But I never found out anything that really convinced me that she saw the execution. But she certainly interrogated Master Kingston after the event. He came to see her to kind of inform her what had happened and what was going on. And really, um, from the accounts, Anne very calmly asked if the men had died well, which, of course, was an incredibly important thing in Tudor times, to die well. Um, uh, Partly here, it was also about had they confessed to having, you know, adulterous relations with Anne or not? Had they kind of kept a clear conscience and told the truth? And it was only poor Mark Smeaton, who was obviously the musician who'd been tortured by Cromwell, who kind of hinted that he deserved to die the others kept to a more kind of traditional pitch, if you like, about, you know, sort of um, dying and dying in Christ and, and you know, speaking good words about the king. That was just a traditional thing to do, but they certainly didn't confess any guilt. And I think Anne was, um, from the words that are recorded, she, she was content, let's put it, I wouldn't say happy. She was, she met it with grace and at this stage dignity. So, I do believe, Rebecca, actually, that by this phase, whether she'd had this high intensity awakening experience, not yet, I don't know if that happened exactly when, but I think she'd certainly gone through those four stages. And I think at that stage, she was in the acceptance stage. And I think there's, from my, from my reading of accounts, there's nothing to say otherwise. Thank you. Now we've reached the fun part of the show. Okay, we were we were already having fun, but this is the game portion. Uh, it's called If I Made You Choose. So if you haven't heard of this game before, basically what I do is I give you two characters from Tudor history and make you choose between them and then briefly give me an answer why you chose that person. Okay, <laughs> right. I'm ready. The first one is Henry VIII or Elizabeth I. Henry VIII, because I'd like to give him a piece of my mind. (laughs) (laughs) All right, the next one. This one should be interesting as well. Wolsey or Cromwell? Oh, that is hard. And it's hard because I've just done my virtual summit on Wolsey. So I I had to do a deep dive into his life. And he turns out to be a much more interesting character than I thought. But... Actually, I think I have to come down on the side of Cromwell. I'm I'm developing a bit of a fascination with Cromwell because although he was Anne's nemesis, maybe because he was Anne's nemesis, um, I just am rather fascinated by his life story and his clear political genius. So he was a a really cultured, multi-talented, shrewd individual, and. Um, I wrote a blog on his uh, city home, Austin Friars, and I'd love to go and take a wander through the Tudor city of London and have a knock on his Austin Friars house and go in and uh, enjoy a little glass of something with him and interrogate him as well, basically. (laughs) 
All right. The next one is let's look at the women who bookended Anne Boleyn, Catherine of Aragon or Jane Seymour. Oh, I, I definitely Catherine of Aragon. I, I have very little time for Jane Seymour. So it's more of a push than a pull, interestingly, here, because Jane Seymour, I think, was as sh- conniving and shrewd as Anne is often accused to be. But Anne never tried to pretend any- to be anything that she wasn't. I think Jane coated herself in sweetness and sugar and pretended to be this sort of uh, holier-than-thou character. And I find that quite difficult to get on with. So I would uh, much rather have a bit of a chat with Catherine of Aragon. Okay, well, let's stick with the Seymours. Now, the last one, which is my favorite one that everybody has to pick from, either Thomas Seymour or Edward Seymour. Got to be Thomas. Um, You know, I like a good flirt. So um, I think he'd be up for that. I don't know whether you'd agree with me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But um, he's a colorful character and he's charismatic. And uh, I think he would make a great dinner guest. And so on that basis, I'd like to send him a dinner invitation. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. I've had loads of fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. Can you tell everybody where they can listen to your podcast, where they can find you on social media, etc.? Absolutely. So, yes, my podcast is called The Tudor History and Travel Show, and you can find it on where you get your podcasts. Um, and my blog is thetudortravelguide.com. Uh, you will find me on uh, mainly Instagram and Facebook. If you search on The Tudor Travel Guide, you will find me. Oh, I'm also on YouTube as well. I'm a bit of a YouTuber, so um, I've got a growing portfolio of uh, videos on there. And again, just search The Tudor Travel Guide. So, searching me, The Tudor Travel guide on most social media will pick me up and now ask the expert nathan welcome back to the show and to this new segment that you haven't been on before called ask the expert now what this segment is all about is we reach out to the listeners and we ask them what questions that they have on a specific subject and so today's subject as you know is Henry the seventh. And so I am going to ask you their questions. Are you ready to get started? Yes, definitely. Go ahead. On Instagram, Sylvie asked a question that I think a lot of us often wonder about. What was the relationship between Henry the seventh and his mother, Margaret Beaufort, like? I mean, th- this is a very interesting dynamic that we have between Henry the seventh and Margaret Beaufort, because they're very famously a very close mother and son partnership. But they didn't actually know each other for a large portion of Henry's younger life. Um, Henry VII, or Henry Tudor even, he he was brought up not by Margaret, but he was brought up by the Herbert family uh, from the age of four years old to 14. And then at 14, he was exiled abroad, only returning back to England at 28 years old. It's only then, really, at 28, that he truly started to bond and live with his mother. But they were unquestionably close, even despite that separation during uh, his younger life. And I think that this must have been down to the fact that Margaret Beaufort was fatherless as a child. Her father died when she was just one years old. Henry Tudor, meanwhile, he never met his father. His father died three months before he was born. 
So I think that Margaret Beaufort must have known what it was like to be brought up without a father. And this helped her bond to her son. You know, this helped her really understand what it was like to make your way in life without your father. And I think that she resolved to step in, step in and fill that void. Um, when he was king, when he was Henry VII, they were definitely close. She wasn't quite the power behind the throne that many think, but she was certainly a respected advisor. He definitely listened to her opinions, but Henry was always his own man. Uh, modern fiction today, they like to show Margaret Beaufort being this evil, scheming, you know, Machiavellian figure behind the throne. But I'm afraid history doesn't really uh, portray her that way when you really study the actual evidence and the source. Um, there's a very interesting insight between their relationship in July 1501, um, by which point Henry had been on the throne for 16 years. By this point, he was starting to get ill, and he actually wrote to his mother, um, referring to her as his entirely well-beloved mother, apologising that he didn't write more because his eyesight was declining. Um, so I always found that a very interesting little insight into their relationship, um, where he clearly wanted to c communicate with her more, but couldn't because of his failing health. You know, that really betrays the closeness of their relationship. Okay, and now on Facebook, Amelia Knight wants to know, what was Henry VIII's life like during exile? Uh, while he was in exile? Hmm, that's a very... That's a very difficult question because Henry VII, during the exile, of course, nobody could have ever predicted this low noble would become a king. So as you can imagine, the sources, the description of his life during this time are very few and far between. Um you know, nobody was looking across to Brittany where he was based and thinking, we need to write a chronicle about this man's life because one day he's going to found the Tudor dynasty. You know, nobody was thinking that way. So we we do have very few um, documents to rely on. What we can say with quite certainty is that Henry's life in Brittany, so he was exiled at 14 years old, and he didn't return until he was 28. That was 14 years where he had to wonder every single day whether that would be the day that he would be killed. Um, through no fault of his own, he was, by the very nature of his blood, considered an enemy of the House of York. And the House of York wanted him dead. Edward IV very famously um, got rid you know, got rid, killed, uh, many of his Lancastrian competitors to the throne. Henry Tudor was always that last, as, they, as he called it, imp, still left abroad. So Henry certainly had much to fear during his life. And certainly there was one occasion uh, in 1476 when Henry was about 18, 19 years old, when he was actually captured by the Yorkists and he was turned over by the Bretons, and he was on his way to being shipped back to England. Now, if he had actually made it back to England, we don't know what could have happened to him, but it's very possible he may have been executed. 
for Henry when he got to the port of St Malo, which was the port in Brittany where he was about to sail back to England, uh, he faked an illness. And while he was faked an illness and the Yorkist uh, captors were trying to put him onto the ship, a commotion broke out in the town where a bunch of Bretons started fighting the Englishmen. And during this commotion, Henry managed to sneak away and he escaped into the local church where he claimed sanctuary. Now, the Englishmen couldn't get into the church and therefore they were forced to leave and return to England empty-handed. Henry was minutes away from being taken back to England and he escaped. Now... Because he did that, because he was clever enough to fake an illness, he very likely saved his own life that day. And he simply went back to the Breton court to live out another 10 years. But that is the exact type of situation that he had to put up with every day when he was in exile. It was one of great stress. It was one of incredible fear, just waiting for the day he would finally be killed. And I'm sure that played a major role in the type of man and the type of king that he later became. Now I have a little follow-up for you from Danielle Teagan on Twitter. And Danielle wants to know, when did Henry VII really consider himself a contender for the throne? In truth, the person to blame for Henry VII, Henry Tudor, ever becoming a contender for the throne is Richard III. And what I mean by that is... Until Richard III became king in the summer of 1483, nobody in England was looking to make um, Henry Tudor king of England. Certainly not Henry Tudor himself, and definitely not Margaret Beaufort. We always hear this claim amongst people who have read fiction that Margaret Beaufort had planned her entire life for Henry Tudor to become king. And I'm afraid to say it's nonsense. Uh, whilst Henry, whilst Edward IV was on the throne, and whilst Edward IV's son, Edward V, looked destined to become king for a long time, nobody was considering Henry Tudor in any way, shape or form to be a potential king. That all changed when Richard III, depending on which side of the argument you come on, usurped the throne or rightfully took the throne. Either way... When Richard III became king, Margaret Beaufort went to meet with Richard. And in this meeting, we believe she asked Richard something along the lines of, will you let my son come back to England and take up his rightful position as the Earl of Richmond? Whatever happened in that meeting she had with Richard III in the summer of 1483, when she left that meeting she clearly was not happy with the answer she had been given. Maybe Richard said, no, your son cannot come back to England to be the Earl of Richmond. What happens? Within weeks, Henry is now transformed as a potential king. And that's where the conspiracy to put Henry Tudor on the throne truly began. It didn't begin when he was a kid. It didn't begin when he was in exile up to that point. It all began with Richard III becoming king. And that is the first time we believe Henry Tudor truly considered himself a contender for the throne. So if we move forward on that subject, 
On Instagram, Omara Monet asks, Why didn't Henry VII want Elizabeth of York as a co-ruler? I mean, to turn the question around, was it that Henry didn't want her? Or rather, was it that the political climate of the time simply didn't allow for a female ruler? Uh, we always take this, we always look at Henry and Elizabeth, and it always seems quite negative towards Henry, as in Henry must not have wanted Elizabeth to be a co-ruler. What a bad man Henry was, keeping Elizabeth down. Why are we assuming that Elizabeth wanted this role to begin with? I mean, we must remember, Margaret Beaufort wasn't queen either. Margaret Beaufort wasn't given power as a co-ruler. Henry was the sole ruler. Henry is the sign of the times. Henry was the man. Henry was the king. And you could only have a sole ruler. They weren't allowing women to be rulers at this time. Obviously, Mary and Elizabeth I, Henry and Elizabeth's granddaughters, came along and really smashed up glassy Lynn. But at the time, there was no way that after a period of war, anyone was going to allow Elizabeth of York to come on the throne as a co-ruler. Elizabeth assumed a role really seen as traditional for English queens, you know, she, she raised the children, she accompanied her husband in an official capacity when required, she supervised the household. She did not actively participate in any matters of policy. Um, there, there's no reason, there exists no reason really to suggest that Elizabeth herself ever forced the issue. Maybe Elizabeth simply didn't want to be a co-ruler. You know, she had never ruled anything before that time as a, as a teenager, she didn't have the skill set required to become the co-ruler. And, I mean, her motto, after all, was humble and reverent. And I think that must have reflected her nature. She was happy to just play her role as English queens before her had always done. You know, this doesn't have to necessarily be a case of Henry keeping Elizabeth down. Now, speaking of Elizabeth of York, we had several followers who asked about the marriage between Henry and Elizabeth. Now, we know that it was a political match, um, but it does seem to have been a pretty successful marriage. And he did seem to truly mourn for her after she passed. So um, what is your take on their marriage, Is I guess, is their question? I think the marriage between Elizabeth and Henry was probably the most successful marriage in medieval English history. You know, possibly all of English history, uh, or royal history anyway. You know, it, th there's no doubt that this was a successful marriage, even if it was a politically driven match. Uh, I mean, Elizabeth was certainly widely respected at home and abroad. Uh, I, I think to one London chronicler, she was considered noble and virtuous. Uh, Whereas Polydor Virgil, um, Henry VII's biographer, who knew her personally, you know, he judged Elizabeth to have been a woman of such character that it would be hard to judge whether she displayed more of majesty and dignity in her life than wisdom and moderation. You know, she was deeply respected by people who knew her. Um, during her funeral, she was, she was lauded as one of the most gracious and best beloved princesses in the world. So basically, this was a magnificent 
princess, you know, uh, a queen loved by everybody, even if it was a politically driven match initially, you can really feel that Henry would have been proud to be married to a woman like Elizabeth. And their love for one another is very clear when it comes to the death of their son, Arthur. Now, what people always forget about with Henry and Elizabeth was that, yes, they had a son, Arthur, who died. They also had another son called Edmund who died. They lost two sons. Um, and, in fact, they lost a daughter called Elizabeth. You know, death was sadly a part of their life as children. Um, and they really... They really helped each other, comforted each other to get over these losses. Um, we have a famous quote, for example, um, that Hen Elizabeth comforted Henry after Arthur died. And when Elizabeth collapsed out of grief, it was Henry who likewise marched to her to comfort her out of true, gentle and faithful love. You know, emotionally... It's very difficult to find a closer couple in royal history. Um, they were they were very close. They were very, considered very close. We have no evidence whatsoever that Henry ever took a mistress. He had no illegitimate children. Um, and certainly if he had been shaken by the death of Arthur, then when Elizabeth died a year later, this completely incapacitated the king. For the first time in his reign, Henry Tudor, who was a man of incredible strength and vigour, for the first time in his reign, he physically and mentally collapsed when his wife died. You know, he suffered a deep depressive episode, uh, a breakdown really, where it was said that he had to take himself away from court to his privy chamber and he had to hide away for several weeks. But arguably, Henry never recovered from his wife's death. You know, the rain really descended quite darkly thereafter. Uh, yes, it was a marriage initially conceived through political necessity uh, and opportunism, but undeniably it developed into a union of trust, fidelity and even love. Okay, so switching gears a bit, on Instagram, both Ingrid and Hagen Heidi ask about Henry VII's fiscal policies and how they influenced his popularity with the people. I mean, Henry's, Henry's tax policies, his fiscal policies, are one of, the, one of the biggest weapons used in the modern day to really beat him with. And it's not unfair. I mean, Henry definitely taxed his people very heavily and it simply doesn't look good when you look back through history and try and judge him as a king and judge him as a man. I mean, his fiscal policies made him very unpopular as his reign ground to an end. But why did Henry tax his people so heavily? Well, survival, first and foremost. I mean, it's no good just to say Henry taxed his people a lot of money, therefore he was a horrible tyrant, a, a miser king. We need to understand why he was doing this. We need to put ourselves into his shoes, become king for a minute, look around as Henry VII and try to understand what he was hoping to accomplish. So the reason he taxed his people was survival. Henry had had a very difficult period on the throne. 
as he reached the last 10 years of his reign, there were pretenders trying to take his throne. There were conspiracies within his royal household. Two of his sons had died. His wife had died. The entire Tudor dynasty was hanging on by a thread. He only had a teenage son left, Prince Henry. If Prince Henry was to die as a teenager, as his brother Arthur had, then the whole Tudor dynasty was over before it even begun. Henry VII was under incredible strain, trying to make sure his crown, his dynasty, survived. So, he needed to make himself insuperable. He needed to make himself, uh, you know, unsurpassable. Nobody could defeat him. And he decided to do that using money. He sought to financially empower the crown whilst suppressing his subjects, making himself richer and his subjects poorer. And it was this policy that he would secure the Tudor succession. This was never about being greedy. It was never about being evil. It was never about being a tyrant. It was always about survival. By levying fines against his nobles, Henry was able to enforce good behaviour and law and order basically through the fear of economic ruin for anybody who failed to toe the line. So if one of his nobles stepped out of line or he felt that they were not being uh, loyal to him, he simply fined them and kept on finding them. It kept them in line. But, of course, it wasn't popular. It wasn't fair. Uh, I mean, Polydor Virgil. Again, Polydor Virgil was Henry VII's court biographer, People often call him a propagandist. Well, he wasn't quite a propagandist because he's on record as criticising Henry quite often. And one of the ways he criticised him was with this taxation policy. For example, Polydor Virgil said that Henry wanted to keep all Englishmen obedient through fear. And it worked because the people, in terror of losing their wealth, began to behave themselves. It worked. By the end of Henry's reign, he was not very popular. The people hated him, but the English crown was not merely solvent. It was overflowing in riches. Henry had to make himself unpopular, to make himself rich, to make sure that his son, Henry VIII, could become king at 17 years old and he could become a rich and popular young king. He sacrificed himself to save the dynasty. And at the end of the day, if we're looking back through tyrannical kings all through English history, I would personally much rather lose my coin than lose my head. And I think history has judged Henry a bit too harshly for that reason. Well, now that you've brought up the pretenders, um, I actually had another question. Of course, this is one of my favorite topics to be able to discuss because there are so many questions regarding it. And both Douglas Breeden and Aaron Pretty also had a question um, about Perkin Warbeck. So did Henry believe that Perkin Warbeck was Richard, Duke of York? I think this will depend once more on our own interpretation of who Warbeck was to try and guess what Henry was getting at. For me, I believe Perkin Warbeck was false. I do believe he was a, 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 an imposter. And therefore, I believe that Henry VII was sincere when he first reported on Warbeck's identity in early July 1493. 
We're often told today by people that Warbeck must have been real because Henry feared him. Henry didn't fear Warbeck because Warbeck was the prince. Henry feared Warbeck simply because Warbeck was somebody trying to invade his kingdom. It doesn't matter who his identity was. He was still a real person trying to invade England. That's who Henry feared. Now, Henry, from the very earliest days of Perkin Warbeck appearing, Henry received intelligence from the French that Warbeck was a fraud, that Warbeck was uh, a boatman's son from Tournay, who had first claimed to be Richard III's bastard son. He had then claimed to be the Duke of Clarence's son, and only finally did he claim to be the son of Edward IV. Henry wrote a letter in 1493 to his uh, one of his men, Gilbert Talbot, saying that Warbeck was a feigned lad. He was a fraud. Henry VII never deviated from the story in public. He always said Warbeck was a fraud from day one to the day Warbeck was hanged. And I believe that Henry was sincere. I believe that's what Henry believed. Because I believe, looking at the history, that Warbeck was a fake. I think most people in history believe that Warbeck was a fraud. So I do believe that that's what Henry believed himself. But at the end of the day, he hung him. (laughs) (laughs) And that he did. Well, now we're wrapping up here, and I think this is like the perfect listener question to end this segment with, especially uh, with talking about Henry VII. So Jane Smith wants to know, what, in your opinion, was Henry VII's greatest achievement? Henry VII's greatest achievement, his chief legacy, is unquestionably the fact that he was able to peacefully hand over his throne to his 17-year-old son, Henry VIII. And he did this by restoring royal power replenishing the treasury and rehabilitating England's, um, you know, continental reputation. Henry saved England from the mess of the Wars of the Roses. And even though he himself could not become this great loved king that he wanted to be, he was the placeholder who did everything he needed to do to make sure that his son, Henry VIII, could be the great hope. Uh, you know, Henry the, Henry VIII, when he became king, was known as the rose, both white and red. It wasn't Henry VII who is the man who united the houses. In his blood, it was Henry VIII. And all Henry VII needed to do was to get to the finish line, recover England's position, make England rich again, and let his son run with it. Um, by surviving into middle-aged uh, and suppressing opposition to his rule, you know, Henry VII became the very first monarch in nearly a century to oversee a successful succession. Edward IV failed. Richard III failed. Henry VI failed. Um, you know, R- Henry VII didn't. He did what they all failed to do. That was his greatest achievement. Now, yes, we know what eventually happened to Henry VIII, but the fact of the matter is is that at 17 years old, and certainly for the first 15 years of his reign, Henry VIII was an incredibly popular king. 
You know, he was popular with everybody on all sides of the divide. I suppose if we want to look longer term, even though this was not something that he planned to do, uh, by marrying his daughter Margaret to the Scottish King James IV, against the advice of his subjects, in fact, nobody in England wanted Henry to marry his daughter to the Scots. Henry did it. And by doing so, he was not only responsible for the Stuarts becoming English kings in 1603, we may also consider Henry VII as being the figure who brought about the later development of Great Britain and the British Empire. For better or for worse, it was his action in marrying his daughter to the Scottish royal, royals, uh, into the Scottish royalty, that was able to bring about that eventual uh, occurrence. Nathan, thank you so much for being on as the expert and answering our listener questions today. Um, where can everybody find you? Uh, yeah, I'm definitely quite active on social media, so you can follow me at Nathan Amin Author on Facebook or Nathan Amin on Twitter. And you can catch me posting whatever jumps into my mind on a daily basis on either of them. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that the truth for most of us? Yeah, definitely. Nathan, thank you so much for being on the show. No problem. Thank you very much. All right. And if you are interested in checking out any of Nathan's many books, including his upcoming book called Henry VII and the Tudor Pretenders, check him out on Amazon. And now, a brief history. William Parr seemed to be one of those people who was born under a blessed star. He had every advantage that wealth and status could bring. He was a highly favored member of the Tudor court and received a string of elevations and preferments from his king, Henry VIII. He was created Baron Parr in 1539, and his sister, Catherine Parr, became queen in 1543. William needed a blue-blooded wife who could serve as his partner in the feminine spheres of court and give him heirs for his estate and titles. The problem was, William was already married. William was born in 1512 and had two sisters, Catherine, as I mentioned, and Anne. Their father, Thomas, died when the children were young, and their mother, Maud, never remarried, dedicating herself to her children. Maud appears to have been a good mother, and it seems all three of the Parr children had a happy childhood. Maud modeled her children's education on the one used by Thomas More for his own children, This featured gentle encouragement and warm praise in an era which harsh discipline was thought to be necessary to keep children from falling into laziness and sin. All of Maud's children would be gifted with a lifelong love of education, art, and literature. Maud was a close friend of Queen Catherine of Aragon, and so her children were brought up in the heart of the court. The pomp, splendor, and intrigue were hearth and home to William. It may have been one of the reasons his marriage was so miserable. His mother was careful in choosing a spouse for him, and she found quite a prize, Lady Anne, the only child of the Earl of Essex. Lady Anne's bloodline was impeccable. Her grandmother had been the sister of Elizabeth Woodville and she shared a great-grandmother with three of Henry VIII's queens. 
Lady Anne would inherit her father's vast wealth, but the title was restricted to the male line. In cases such as these, the king would sometimes confer it on to the woman's husband as a new creation, especially when the husband was so highly in favor with the king. William was 13 when he married Lady Anne. The bride was only 10 years old. Because of their youth, the couple was sent home to their respective parents after the wedding. They wouldn't live together as man and wife for another 12 years. When they finally set up a household together, William and Lady Anne discovered that they were completely incompatible. Lady Anne wasn't well-educated or cultured, and she hated court life. William was a passionate adherent of the Reformed faith, and Lady Anne was a conservative, old-school Catholic. Ordinarily, this wouldn't be an issue. After all, marriages of the nobility weren't predicated on love. Most couples hoped for a cordial relationship that could possibly deepen into a mutual affection over the years, but Lady Anne and William seemed to have heartily disliked one another. In 1540, Lady Anne's father died after a fall from his horse. It's possible William may have expressed more excitement about inheriting his longed-for title than sympathy for his wife's grief. He must have been stunned when the king decided to grant the vacant earldom of Essex to Thomas Cromwell instead. The next year, a scandal rocked the court. Lady Anne left her husband for her lover. How Lady Anne met that lover is a matter of speculation. His name was John Lingfield, and he was the prior of St. James Church in Tambridge in Surrey. The church was on the dower lands of William's sister, Catherine Parr, so it's possible that this could have created an occasion for them to meet. In any case, Lady Anne was soon setting up household in one of the manors that she had inherited from her father, Little Wakering, in Essex, and she was pregnant. William was enraged and likely rather embarrassed. In that era, man with a cheating wife was a figure of ridicule, a cuckold who couldn't keep his house in order. It was practically expected that a man would have a mistress, but for a noblewoman to openly take a lover was something entirely different. William wrote a letter to his wife saying, but she, being very obstinate, refused his good counsel and godly exhortations. And Lady Anne wrote back saying that she'd take her pleasure where she listed and she never loved William and never would. With this bold and defiant decision, Lady Anne had cast aside all of her wealth and titles. She'd thrown aside respectability. A woman known to be unchaste was thought to have no honor and there was no way of regaining it, even if she was penitent. Many women in this situation would retire to a convent in disgrace, but not Lady Anne. She openly lived with Lingfield for a time, though the relationship may have ended before she had her second child, because the paternity of that one is somewhat murky. There was nothing William could do. He could, and did, ask for a legal separation, but divorce was rarely granted, and the parties were usually barred from remarrying while both spouses were still living. But when Lady Anne gave birth to Lingfield's son, he felt he had to take action, lest the child could have a claim on his estate. 
1543, an item appears in the letters and papers of Henry VIII, which announces that since Lady Anne had begotten a child in adultery, any future children she had would be held to be bastards. It was confirmed as an act of Parliament. Shortly thereafter, William met the woman who was likely the love of his life, Elizabeth Brooke. Brooke was everything William wanted in a wife. She was beautiful, cultured, vivacious, and charming, the perfect partner for an ambitious courtier. It's said Henry VIII eyed her as a replacement wife after the execution of Catherine Howard. Imperial Ambassador Eustace Chapuis said cynically of the situation that Brooke, quote, had wit enough to do as boldly as the others if she wished. Ultimately, the king chose William's sister, Catherine Parr, as his sixth queen. It was likely due to his sister's marriage that in December, William was finally created Earl of Essex, a title that had been rendered vacant again when Cromwell was executed in 1542. When King Henry died and his son Edward VI took the throne, William finally had hope for ending his marriage to Lady Anne. Edward was Protestant, and his church had different rules for divorce and remarriage. He applied to a council of learned men to make a ruling on his case and plied them with luxurious gifts. In 1547, he was created the Marquess of Northampton, and this lofty rank may have increased his feeling of urgency. His sister, the widowed Queen Catherine Parr, eloped with Thomas Seymour without the permission of the council, and perhaps that gave William the courage to do something similar. So without waiting on a ruling, he married Elizabeth Brooke, hoping they'd later rule this marriage legitimate, the way Henry VIII's marriage to Anne Boleyn had been legitimized months later when the church he created ruled on the king's previous marriage to Catherine of Aragon. But after only a week... They ordered William to separate from Brooke and never speak to her again on pain of death. And William protested, of course. According to Burnett, he said, quote, He thought that by the word of God that he was discharged of his tie to his former wife, and the making marriage indissoluble was but a part of the popish law by which it was reckoned a sacrament. He seems to have blamed the Lord Protector and conspired to have him overthrown, a clumsy plot that was ultimately unsuccessful. William was not punished, probably because the Protector soon fell for treason himself and was replaced by William's friend, John Dudley. In 1551, the church ruled on his marriage to Lady Anne and he was granted a divorce. His marriage to Brooke was recognized as legitimate. William also got to keep most of Lady Anne's wealth. Brooke was a shining jewel of the court as William's wife. The young king was unmarried, and John Dudley's wife wasn't interested in leading the court festivities, and so Brooke served as the court's substitute queen. But fate handed them a brutal reversal. King Edward died, and Jane Grey briefly occupied the throne. The couple supported her, and once Queen Mary seized power, William was attained as a traitor, all of his titles and wealth forfeit to the crown. Queen Mary's church reversed the ruling on William's marriage, and Lady Anne was once again his legal wife. He was ordered to never speak to Elizabeth Brooke again. As Burnett writes, On the 20th day of November, it was agreed to. 
It recites that the act confirming the second marriage was procured more upon untrue surmises and private respects than for any public good and increase of virtue, and that it was an encouragement for sensual persons to take a second wife. Lady Anne came to court to speak with Queen Mary to see if she could recover any of her father's estates. Sometimes, monarchs took mercy on wives and gave them their dower rights or portions of confiscated property. Queen Mary seems to have taken a liking to Lady Anne and granted a large annuity. Strangely enough, Lady Anne decided to stay at court. Brooke went to go live with some of her family in Blackfriars, and as an additional twist of fate's knife, she watched her mother, father, and grandmother die during an influenza pandemic. William found his way to her and fell ill from it too, but he survived. Reportedly, the two of them lived in miserable poverty. In 1558, Queen Mary died, and Queen Elizabeth ascended to the throne. Though they weren't related by blood, William had been the brother of Elizabeth's beloved stepmother, Catherine Parr. The queen considered William her uncle, and she was generous with family. He was restored in blood and given back one of his titles, the Marquess of Northampton. The ruling on his marriage was once again reversed. Brooke was finally his legal wife, after six long years. She took her place once again at court as one of the most prominent ladies in the land and was such a close advisor to the queen that she was frequently given lavish gifts by foreign dignitaries, hoping that she'd use her influence for them. But by 1564, it was obvious there wasn't going to be a happy ending to their story. Brooke had breast cancer which was a death sentence in that era. There was no effective treatment methods, but the couple seemed to have been willing to try anything and everything to save Brooke's life. She traveled all the way to the Netherlands in search of a cure. And once she was back in England, doctors came from all over Europe, offering their own treatments. Elizabeth Brooke died in 1565, deeply in debt to all those doctors. Queen Elizabeth paid for the funeral. A few years later, an enchanting young woman, who was said to greatly resemble Brooke, came to Queen Elizabeth's court. Her name was Elin Ulfstadter, which she anglicized to Helena Snakenborg. She came to England in Princess Cecilia of Sweden's train. William likely used his influence with the queen to get Elizabeth to put pressure on Cecilia to allow Helena to stay when the princess returned to Sweden. Nobles and royalty were personally responsible for the young women who served them as maids of honor. Helena was taken into Elizabeth's household and became one of her ladies of the privy chamber. William was head over heels, but how Helena felt is more difficult to parse out. To her parents, she wrote about the noble bloodline and lofty title of this man who was courting her. In other words, it's likely it wasn't a love match on her part, but she did see the benefits of marrying a man so highly ranked and so close to the queen. As much as he wanted to marry Helena, William felt he couldn't while Lady Anne was still alive. Parliament had recognized his marriage to Brooke, but that was somewhat of a special case. He didn't want to go through that struggle again. 
Lady Anne died in late January, 1571. William married Helena in May. The queen threw them a lavish wedding at Whitehall Palace. William was 52 and his new bride was 27. But this was also a story that was destined to have an unhappy ending. He died that October, only a few months after the marriage. We don't know the cause, only that it was sudden and to the people of the Tudor era, inexplicable. Thrice married, William Parr, Marcus of Northampton, had no children, and so his small estate went to the son of his sister, Anne Parr. Despite all of the lofty titles and positions that he had attained, he wasn't a wealthy man when he passed away, having lost most of it in multiple reversals of fate he suffered over the years. Helena was granted the use of his title for the rest of her life, even after her remarriage to a second cousin of Anne Boleyn. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.